think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 79 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 80th episode. I'm Laurent Carboneau. All of in Rainbow. And uh, yeah, we thought the last episode we did was going to be the last one we did before the election. Um, before the writ was drawn up. And as it happens, uh, we were sort of pressed back into service by the release of um, our old friend Mario Dion, the Conflict of Interest and Ethics Commissioner's uh, newest report. Yeah, the, the ethics beat has really been our beat since basically day one. I mean, like, literally the first episode we did, I think, was a, a deep conflict of interest dive into uh, the Trudeau One report. Yeah. Uh, so this is a fitting bookend Full to this circle, parliament. two yeah. years later. Yeah, so there you go. Over two years later. Life, uh, life follows literature sometimes. <laughs> So, I guess yeah, not to not to bury the lead too much. Um, Trudeau was deemed to be in violation of the Conflict of Interest Act, Section Nine thereof. So let's actually just start this whole episode by with just acknowledging re- exactly reading Section Nine. Yeah. Okay? So actually, let's let's backtrack slightly and start with a discussion about the Conflict of Interest. Because Act. did Trudeau break the law? Okay. So here's the thing with breaking the law: when you jaywalk. You break the law. It is, however, not a crime. You see, there's a distinction here that is important. Be it uh, a bylaw yes. or a municipal, what a municipal statute, a municipal yeah. statute, or, or something along those lines. I think they should call them bylaws, actually. Yeah. But, yeah. but at any rate, what what I think it's it's extremely accurate to say that the prime minister broke the law. It is not accurate to say that the prime minister has been found guilty of a crime. That that is not what happened here, and it is not a criminal matter. Uh, but it was law breaking in the sense of the, the quite literal sense of he was found by a properly constituted administrative authority to have violated a law. Yes, I mean, the, it's pretty. The, the that's conflict, it. The Conflict of Interest Act is an act passed by the Parliament of Canada. Yes, which goes through royal assent and yes. becomes a law. Justin Trudeau was not a member of parliament at the time it was passed, but I believe the Liberal Party voted for it, so... Here, here we are. <laughs> so, just a, a quick background on that, because I think it helps... It'll, it'll help with general understanding, is that the Conflict of Interest Act, in its current uh, form... Uh, actually, well, yeah. In its current form, um, was part of the Federal Accountability Act. Yeah, 2006. Which was... I'm trying to remember this. Was it C5 in uh, Harper's... It was very early In on. Harper's first yeah. parliament, uh, which was a suite of legislative reforms targeted around sort of ethics and accountability, yes. lobbying, a bunch of other things, coming out of lessons learned from the... Sponsorship scandal. Sponsorship scandal. Um, this was back in the Halcyon days where the Harper government was uh, voted into government, uh, promising to clean up Ottawa. Yes, and as a minority, which is you know always good important context there. Correct. Um, so included in the Federal Accountability Act was the creation of uh, essentially the Conflict of Interest and Ethics Commissioner, um, of which we've had two. Well, was Mary Dawson. Mary from Dawson, the, the yeah. first one. Yeah. yeah. Mary Dawson being the first one. Appointed Ooh. by Stephen Harper. This yes. is uh, of significance. Well, appointed by Stephen Harper, but before anyone starts getting really anxious about that, she was a longtime public servant, was very important uh, in Trudeau Sr.'s repatriation yes. of the Constitution in 8081. So, like, this is someone who is not someone with a partisan axe to grind, uh, and in fact had had a long and productive relationship with um, governments of, of both party stripes. 
No, I, I raise that mostly to contrast. Yes. Um, because I'm ethics commissioner. Um, is appointed on 70-year terms. Um, so Mary Dawson had the first run at it, and now uh, Mario Dion was appointed by this liberal government. Yes. And it's worth saying also that Mary Dawson was uh, sort of extended as an interim measure after her term formally expired, yes. which is why the years don't really add up there. But. So broadly, um, the, the conversation we're going to have today is centered around uh, Section 9, um, but there are a lot of other sections in the law. Yes. Um, so I, th- I think it's worth touching on that because I think it's good to understand generally the types of things that the Conflict of Interest Act is intended to prevent uh, or discourage people from doing, okay? So let me like just pull some random uh, sections of law. Hopefully not random ones. That would be unhelpful. Well, not, not entirely random. <laughs> uh, section 5, general duty. Every public office holder shall arrange his or her private affairs in a manner that will prevent the public office holder from being in a conflict of interest. Yes. Um, let's go. Preferential treatment. Section 7. No public office holder shall, in the exercise of official power, duty, or function, give preferential treatment to any person or organization based on the identity of the person or organization that represents the first mentioned yeah. person or organization. So this is kind of the, this is a, very much the sister provision to the Lobbying Act, which is to say that you are not to give preferential treatment to an organization based on who is representing them. Yeah. So like, let's say your your old buddy is, you know, a, a former for the... clerk of the Privy Council. <laughs> well, and yeah, so to get back, actually, let's touch on that later. But yeah, so let's say it's, it's someone who you've been involved with politically that, you know, like ran a campaign for you or, you know, raised money or what have you, who then comes knocking and says, hey, I have this client. Can you do X, Y, Z? Um, so that lobbyist is prohibited from doing that by the, the lobbying code and the lobbying act. But um obviously laws get broken but it imposes upon the office holder an obligation to not then oblige um the person they know yes yes uh so just to read one more before we actually get to the core of it um outside offers of offers of outside employment no public office holder shall allow himself or herself to be influenced in the exercise of an official duty uh power duty or function by plans for or offers of outside employment. Mm-hmm. Basically, don't be doing things when you have a job queued up. Like a lot of these are very common sense. Yeah, and like they're they're basically like very standard in most conflict of interest rules and laws that are like in effect throughout the world. Like it's it's pretty boilerplate stuff. There's nothing really particularly Canadian about our our so, law. Ex- <laughs> Except for the planes bit, but that's, well, yes. that's a story for another time. <laughs> well, we've already discussed that. Actually, go back to episode one. Um, but let's... Okay, now the the provision at hand here has been section nine, titled Influence. Let's just read it out. There's a few parts to it that I think we'll highlight as, as we go well, through Well, yeah, this. there's three moving parts to this law. Uh, no public Our office second. holder shall use his or her position as a public office holder to seek to influence a decision of another person uh, so as to further the public office holder's private interests or those of the public office holders, relatives or friends, and this one's key, or to improperly further another person's private interest. Okay, so this creates several tests when it, the commissioner is looking to see if Section 9 was, was breached. Did the public office holder use their position to influence or to seek to influence the decision of another person? Was that, posi- like, was that use of their position done so as to further one of three categories of people the public office holders private interest themselves 
those of the private or the public office holders, relatives, or friends, or another person's private interest, which imposes a further test, was the use of their position to seek to influence another person's it done improperly. Yes. Which is not defined in the statute, but is left to the commissioner to interpret. And are there any public interest exceptions there are, to, to Section 9? There are not any... There's nothing in this law that says, unless there are a lot of jobs, in which case it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and th- that is actually a key point. Yes. Uh, as a lot of the defense of... Yes. Uh, a lot of the controversy from sort of the academic uh, scholarly discussion as to whether or not Mario Dion has correctly interpreted Section 9 stems around sort of reading in yes. a public interest exception yes. to the Yes, and law. so we will come back to this, but if you follow us on Twitter, then you've seen us say this, but sec- paragraph 319 in this report really is the entire interpretive hinge on which the whole thing turns, and we will come to it later. Uh, but essentially, uh, the commissioner really ha- did have to make a determination at some point that, like, you know, office holders are always going to look at something and be able to divine some sort of public interest for what they're doing right some sort of reasonable rationale for why what they're doing is the right thing the issue is that you cannot count intent only as like the the crux of your decision so i have paragraph 319 in front of me and i'll do we'll get to it now because i think like i said it is really the important thing because the prime minister's defenders have been very uh adamant that the public interest is what was being served here, not a private interest, but here's what the commissioner says. In my view, it remains unclear whether these factors, which is to say uh, SNC and jobs and all of that, are truly national economic interests, which must be excluded from consideration and bracket again uh, from a deferred prosecution agreement, or are legitimate factors that must be weighed in deciding whether to negotiate a remediation agreement. Regardless of how such interests are classified, in this case, the larger public considerations are inextricably linked to SNC-Lavalin's private interests. Accordingly, Mr. Trudeau could not properly put forward any arguments involving public or private interests to the Attorney General. The remediation agreement regime makes it clear that only the prosecutor must weigh or exclude these interests. So essentially, that it, there was no way to separate out, particularly in a case where SNC-Lavalin is the only real affected party, uh, there's no way to extricate the public from the private interest. So let, let me give another example using Section 9, a different a different half of Section 9 that I think makes this case very obvious, right? Um, so as, as you illustrated, there are three different sort of parts of the initial test. And one of them is whether or not you're seeking to further a public office holders' private interests or those of a relative or friend. So yeah. let, let's use the friend example, right? So I'll use you. If you had a mining company, well, not a mining company. I love mining. I'm trying to think of something that's really public interesty. An NGO that was giving Canadians vaccines. Sure. Um, and I was the Minister of Health. Mm-hmm. And I looked and I had a meeting with you and I said, Laurent, it seems like your company does super good work. We're very close friends. But what you're doing is in the public interest. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to give you $100 million to hand out those vaccines. Yes. Without a competitive tender process. Yeah, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Just yeah. my involvement in yeah. it, because this is where one should uh, not exclude, well, exclude themselves from the process and set up a conflict of interest screen and all of these other mechanisms yeah. to ensure this doesn't happen. Uh, but the commissioner would be right to find us in conflict of section or in, uh, breach. in breach of section nine there, yeah. because 
just because there is a public interest argument, frankly, there should be a public interest argument every single time a dollar goes out <laughs> the door in some form or another. One would hope, yes. Um, well, that's the thing is that like this this generous reading basically makes it so the test is if I ask the public office holder did you do this because you wanted to do something corrupt and they say no, then it's the end of the story. Yes. Like, it's ridiculous on its face, right? So I've, I've compared this to sort of uh, mens rea versus actus rea. Ooh. Where, yeah. <laughs> the, the criminology 101 coming out. Um, where in one case, it's guilty mind versus guilty act or whatever it yes. is. Um, did you do the act? Yeah. Is the test rather than did you know it was a crime? Yeah. And so in this case, a lot of people are like, oh, no, he had the best of intentions in yes. mind, as opposed to, did he commit this act yes. and was in conflict? Yes, because, yeah, it would be, once again, actually, and, like, we have been critical of decisions the Conflict Interest Commissioner has made before. What? Uh, yeah, so the Taze report from a couple of years ago, where the rule, the upshot of the ruling, and we've discussed this in a previous episode was that uh, in determining whether there were direct and significant dealings between a public office holder and a stake- an outside stakeholder... In relation to the cooling-off period. In for- relation to the cooling-off period for accepting work uh, outside of government, that the directness was fairly well established, but the significance was to the stakeholder. So in, in Vic Tase's case, where he was you know the regional minister for Manitoba, as well as the justice minister and uh, another portfolio at some point as well, um, public safety. Public safety. He had taken a meeting with an organization, and then later in his, um, you know, post in his five years after his leaving government or several two, two years, two years, two years, yes, two years sorry, for two years um, he accepted some consulting work for them. For him, the meeting had been very minor meeting with a minor regional stakeholder, but for the regional stakeholder itself, they had thought of it as a big deal. But obviously, if you're the public office holder, you cannot know that. Yes. Which puts, I think, that was an absurdity because it puts the burden of knowing whether something is wrong or not outside of the public office holder's universe of knowledge. It is absurd on its face. And it's, it's not really clear <laughs> who should be in the position to answer the question of whether or not it was significant. Like, who speaks for the company? Yes, exactly. So it was absurd. Uh, the other one was the reclassification last year, once again, related to the cooling off period, meaning that's basically the upshot of it was that partisan political staff in minister's office could not then go work for the public service. I read a really good article about this in Policy Options. Ooh, yeah. Was it written by Adrian Merrill? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. So at any rate, like this just just to say that we have disagreed with the commissioner's rulings in the past, and we're, we read them with, with an open mind, and certainly... Um, and, and I think there are many more examples uh, than that where... Oh, and Mary Dawson had where, a habit of, yeah, of some pretty interesting <laughs> rulings. Where one could disagree with the commissioner. So, I mean, to a certain extent... When, when looking at the, the criticism, I think we have a position, having both read the report and, you know, putting ourselves in Mario Dion's shoes and following this and reading through the report, and we tend to side with him. Um, however, you know, the, the Supreme Court regularly has split decisions. Yeah. Um, when it comes to interpreting these things that our have very is, little... Our authority is very similar to the Supreme Court. <laughs> <laughs> the Supreme Takes Council. Very little jurisprudence. And frankly, the jurisprudence is somewhat constantly shifting yes. as officers of parliament are given wide latitude to not lean on precedent yeah. um, and can sort of make things up as they go. This is sort of the nature of their position. Yes. Um, they get to define words in the act that aren't defined. Mary Dawson defined friends in a 
uh, way in the Agron <laughs> report yeah. uh, that perhaps the Prime Minister's Council would have disagreed with or would have taken issue with because they were arguing that the Agricon was a friend the entire time. Yes. Um, all of that is to say... Too bad they didn't get to argue at me instead of friend. There's... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, oh, sorry. I will explain that joke because it is very funny. Um, in the Trudeau 1 report, it emerged, which was hinged around his acceptance of, of private accommodation and travel from uh, the Aga Khan, uh, they had argued that the law only applied to fixed-wing aircraft rather than helicopters because in French it only says avion rather than aircraft. Yes. Which, yeah, is pretty funny. Um, but yes, they re- and they actually seem like they've argued some stinkers here too. So we'll, we'll get to those. So my, my point in raising all of this was to say that there's certainly, no, no matter what case it is, there's always uh, wiggle room to dispute it one way or another. Yeah. Um, but there is a mechanism for review that exists and it's judicial review to the federal yeah. court. Um, you know who else availed themselves of that option? SNC-Lavalin. We'll come back to it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the at, at this point, we don't know that the prime minister, uh, the prime minister's office, has availed themselves of that. Yeah. Speaking of, what's it? Where's the lawsuit on Andrew Shearer uh, going? Have they? Is that? They nothing happened with that, eh? He's uh, I've God. Seen, what a bad bluff. I, I've seen that uh, raised this yeah. week. Yeah. Well, fair enough. I mean, because it centered around the prime minister broke the law was yeah. the allegation yep. of uh, libel yep. there or defamation. Mm-hmm. Um, well, well, whoops. <laughs> yep. Um, as as that has now been on the front page of the Global Mail, the National Post, and yes, everywhere else. As as they say, you love to see it. So tough. Um, so <laughs> let's talk about the substance of the report a little more. Sure. So let me start off with like the very top of it, which will walk through. Like I, I mentioned the sort of three part test earlier. Yeah. Here's what like where he landed on this stuff. The evidence showed that SNC Lavalin had significant financial interest in deferring prosecution. These interests would likely have been furthered had Mr. Trudeau successfully influenced the AG to intervene in the DPP's decision. By the way, I assume everyone listening to this is familiar with the bare facts of like the last six months of political controversy, so we won't rehash it in full. The actions that sought to further these interests were improper since they were contrary to the Shawcross Doctrine and the principles of prosecutorial independence and the rule of law. For these reasons, I found that Mr. Trudeau used his position of authority over Ms. Wilson-Raybould to seek to influence, both directly and indirectly, her decision on whether she should overrule the DPP's decision not to invite SNC-Lavalin to enter into negotiations towards a remediation agreement. Therefore, I find that Mr. Trudeau contravened Section 9 of the Act. So to recap on the test, did the Prime Minister use his influence? Yes. Uh, Was that to advance the private interests, or would that have advanced the private interests of a third party? Yes. Was it done improperly? Yes. There you go. And the bar for improper, because again, improper is not defined. And when it comes to public office holders, uh, the question of what constitutes improper is is somewhat of an open question. Um, this is where the commissioner leaned on Shawcross yes. and his, his interpretation of Shawcross, something that the constitutional lawyers got defensive of. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. Only we can properly interpret Shawcross. Yes, but at the end of the day, someone has to do it, and it, we can't, like, give big consulting contracts to every law prof that wants to have a say on this, so, you know. Tough. Yes. Um, and to, to say that the commissioner is not simply a single individual. The commissioner has an office um, yes. that is staffed with career bureaucrats. Including... Uh, 
Dominic LeBlanc's sister-in-law as it, <laughs> as it, as it happens. God. Um, yeah, so lawyers who have bounced around the federal uh, civil service. Um, so, you know, yeah. he, he's reasonably well-placed to make... Dion is himself a lawyer. ...quasi-judicial right? pronouncements, um, such such as was the case here. Yeah. I, I mean, that that is basically yeah. what he got appointed to do. So the next big thing, like going through the report from the beginning, is his sort of evidence-gathering process that raised a lot of eyebrows. Um, he interviewed a lot of the, the main principals in this whole thing, reviewed a lot of documents. Um, but he did mention very early on that he had a lot of trouble, well, had a lot of trouble, I think he's putting it lightly, was unable to access documents that were deemed to be cabinet confidences by the clerk of the Privy Council. As well as? Uh, as well as certain individuals, I think. for Nine, nine, nine individuals who, I think he says, came forward, uh, which I found somewhat bewildering. Yes, to speculate as to who those individuals might be, it seems unlikely that they'd be uh, political staff who, I, who I would voluntarily seems... come forward. Unless unless they were political staff from the adversarial minnows, let's call them. Hmm. Uh, the adversarial minister's offices. Sure. So, you know... Jody Wilson Rabel's former chief of staff or someone. Yeah, I don't know if she was interviewed, know, yeah. I don't know. Well, she was interviewed. Okay. I, I don't know if she would count as one of these nine if she had things that she couldn't say because sure. of the waiver being insufficiently broad. Okay. Uh, well, the waiver I, I only know. applied to the Justice Committee. No. It Did it al- not? No. Oh, was it? Also, it also applied to the, to the committee. You're right, yeah. yes. It was just no other parliamentary committees. That's right. Yeah, yes. I'd forgotten about that. Um, so we don't really know who those nine individuals are. I think it's likely to be some combination of civil servants and the adversarial minnows. The Nazgul. Um Maybe some PCO officials. I don't really know. Um, it's it's an astonishingly high number. Yes. If it's not overlapping with some of the individuals already interviewed. Yes. Um, but we're, we're just not sure at this point and perhaps never will be. Yes. And he, he was actually pretty unhappy about Oh, he that. was. Yes. I'll, I'll read his, his sort of relevant uh, paragraph 18. Because of the decisions to deny our office further access to cabinet confidences, witnesses were constrained in their ability to provide all evidence. I was therefore prevented from looking over the entire body of evidence to determine its relevance to my examination. Decisions that affect my jurisdiction under the Act by setting parameters on my ability to receive evidence should be made transparently and democratically by Parliament, not by the very same public office holders who are subject to the regime I administer. Um, it's a really interesting question that kind of goes to the heart of the, like, the principle of responsible government, frankly, because you have an office of the legislature, who is the Conflict of Interest Ethics Commissioner, being told by the government to whom which is accountable to the legislature, that no, you cannot see these things. Um, despite there being an act of parliament that sort of says you can investigate. It is. It, I think that that is a... I, I don't want to opine further on that. I just think it's an interesting question of like where the power lies in our, our system of government. So let, let me just opine further on that. Um, he was asking for um, documents that were cabinet confidence. Um, cabinet confidence is long, long-standing tradition, and yes. it exists for very good reasons. Oh yeah, totally. Um, so he was functioning on the goodwill of the executive to waive confidence in a investigation he was doing about the executive, yes. which, which is where our norms-based system sometimes is, is, is uh... naturally a, a bit problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, but the cabinet confidence does exist for very good reason. So the natural override in our system is Parliament. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Parliament of Canada has the ability to compel basically any document in the entire country 
uh, it has the absolute supreme authority to compel things that are cabinet confidences, things subject to ongoing legal investigations, anything you can possibly imagine. Um, however, that requires a majority of parliamentarians yes. to take up the cause. Which is difficult when the government rests on it commanding majority support in the legislature. Yes, it, it, would, <laughs> it would almost be tantamount to a vote of non-confidence if the I think it definitely majority be, yes. of MPs in a majority government were voting any government to compel yes. papers from the government of the day yes that would be unprecedented yes. well i'm sure there actually is a precedent somewhere but i, I hate saying that because there, there usually is um i think the other interesting thing in the so there's a there was a lot of information that we sort of knew in this report or stuff that had been sort of we got to see the kind of neutral third party kind of give their take on events that we had heard characterized by both, for instance, Jerry Butts and Joe Dawson raybold There was a lot of new information about especially the sort of pattern of coordination between SNC at very high levels and the PMO on the other side. Um, and that, I think, is some of the most concerning and least discussed uh, parts of this report so far. Sure. Um, like, they were, I mean, the whole hubbub in whenever this was, geez, like, 18 years ago in march uh, <laughs> so how long it feels um about the participation of beverly mclaughlin and giving jody wilson rabel the favorable second opinion for granting snc dpa where as it turns out as we learned from Dion, snc was basically talking to beverly mclaughlin about giving shaping this opinion yeah but, that it seems like the provenance of her particular name being dropped in all this yes was cooked up <laughs> S- snc had suggested it yes. to pmo pmo took it to jwr yes and meanwhile we're talking behind the scenes to, she yeah. was in contact with them yes and was going back and forth and, and had even said i am not a lawyer yes. anymore and I, I can't give a legal opinion i think she deserves credit for doing the smart and correct thing here which is like uh not touching this with the 10-foot pole <laughs> Um, but uh, yeah, and some some ink has been spilled about the role of retired Supreme Court justices in all of this because there are at least three who are part of this discussion. So I yeah, let, let me comment on this. Uh, at least three, almost quorum. Uh, <laughs> uh, in the United States, this is a fairly common topic of sort of academic analysis is in terms of civil military relationships. Mm-hmm. And the undermining of the military in the public eye when generals or retired, uh, whoever it is, retired yeah. military officers don their uniform and use it for political purposes. Yeah. Be it, you know, the way the generals have been trotted out by uh, Donald Trump. Such handsome guys. Re- retired generals. People. Better looking than Tom Cruise. People not using retired when they run for public office after yeah. having been discharged from the military. All, all of these things. That it basically makes the military uh, more polarized, more politicized, and in a way that's generally bad for the government. Um, well, in the United States, there is a long tradition of having uh, Democratic and Republicans in high level uh, high level positions in essentially all the different departments. The military has never sort of swapped out between. Uh, allegiances like that and for for very because it's consistently republican (laughs) well for for very good (laughs) except for the navy which is democrats for some reason generally it's not it's not treated the same way no um 
All of that is to say, we haven't really had that conversation with our Canadian Eminos Grises, which seems to be that the uh, Supreme Court justices serve as trump cards in any sort of public legal policy discussion. Um, yes, well, where... and the U.S. has spared this problem because they all die on the bench, right? <laughs> like, yes, it's, uh, that, that, or is a, that is an upside retire to lifetime at like, appointments. Or retire at like 112 years old and like are then done. But yep. yeah, so I mean, personally, my theory on this, and this, like, this is actually my least materialist like position I hold, uh, is that they get bored in retirement and like to do stuff and keep busy. For sure. I mean, I, I think I that's like ninety percent of it is they're given interesting legal work and people enjoy doing who it. are at the center of a very powerful institution and have you know not people at their beck and call. That's not necessarily right, but are in a, a position of power. Um, generally like their work and generally seek to continue being in such a prestigious role or doing prestigious things um, instead of, you know, being at an all-you-can-eat resort in Mexico for the the next 10 to 15 years. God's waiting room. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, I mean, we see them tapped by by the federal government quite often. A lot. um, Be it for an inquiry here. Yes. A analysis there, a whatever it is, but yeah. like the government is guilty of this as well. But I think there needs to be a broader uh, political conversation. Maybe Anne McClellan can do a report <laughs> <laughs> about the uh, yeah about where we should take it and whether or not there should be some sort of post-employment prohibitions uh, on Supreme Court justices yes. in addition to the ones yeah. that they already have. To circle, so that that I think is is reasonable. Um, and certainly, I think this has showed that there is a bit of... Look, I think the, the whole legal guild in Canada is is a very tight-knit little community and likes its privileges and its little perquisites. And I, I don't want to begrudge it to them too much. They work very hard, I'm very I'm sure. But um, I, long-time listeners of the show will know that I have, I have no special love for, for the Lawyers Guild. But um, to circle back to the role of SNC in this, yes. I think... There, so there was this occasion... There was the occasion of Gerald Butts' dinner with Jody Wilson Raybould, where basically SNC and another PMO staffer were texting updates to each other how it was going, more or less. Uh, someone I think memorably put it on CBC the other day, like SNC sitting under the table listening <laughs> to it, which is a is a visually striking metaphor, um, certainly. Um, yeah, I mean that's really I think the incredibly the incredible degree of collusion here between the prime minister's office and to some degree uh the minister of finance's office and snc on the other side is like i think should be galling to people more so than has been the conversation thus far because it really is like the center of government working against itself on behalf of this corporation which is really not how ministers and the prime minister should comport themselves in public like Especially when there's this DPP negotiation going on. So this is the thing is SNC was directly talking to the director of public prosecutions about, you know, entering into a remediation agreement. And then at another point filed for judicial review of the decision not to do so, which we have the, you know, before the court's subjudicate provision in our laws and our sort of norms governing the behavior of, of government officials. And as Jody Wilson-Raybould pointed out, uh, in her testimony in February, the occasion of SNC filing an application for judicial review of the decision should have been the end of all discussion between members of the executive branch of government and uh, SNC-Lavalin. 
that was not the case. Uh, they continued to discuss actively at the PMO level with, with the company. Um, and that that is, it is quite bad. Um, and I think that, that that deserves a lot more scrutiny of exactly what were the nature of those conversations afterwards. Um, really, really not good. I think uh, as Dion sort of wagged his finger at them for this too. Uh, this is paragraph 335. The SNC application for judicial review should have put Mr. Trudeau and those acting under his direction on notice to cease all discussions with SNC on the matter. Yeah. So he doesn't go further than that. Yeah, he. I think he talks about the letter. Because yeah. that, if were he to go there, that would really not be his place. Enforcing subjudicate is not really like his speed. But yes, this was bad. So one one of the things that strikes me from this can is, I actually can I sorry I'm sure go one ahead. thing the next paragraph says to the contrary the evidence indicated that discussions between PMO and SNC intensified in number and in tenor following the commencement of legal proceedings uh, during that time various settlement mechanisms were discussed without regard to the prosecution service's role and the dele- as a delegated representative of the AG in the proceedings uh, and that in 340 he says this was clearly improper without knowledge or involvement of AG or DPP. So actually, he did. This was part of his uh, finger his opinion on this. Yes, the, the the big finger wag. Yes. So I think let, let me just draw this back to a broader point. Sure. Um, early on, we discussed the you know that there are often gray areas around interpretation, and lawyers will be quick to, particularly partisan lawyers, will be quick to take up the pen, the guild, and write a defense of the government's actions here and say, ah, but you misinterpreted this. Ah, but so- Shawcross meant this but not this you had to read the next paragraph of like all all of this yeah um but at the end of the day and this is why i'd say like it's it's more shades of gray than black or white because a lot of the a lot of that argument seems to be that you know if only he didn't he wasn't well i'm gonna call it found guilty uh of breaching section nine then this would all be okay Mm mm-hmm um, but that's really obviously not the case based on Dion's readings of events. Yes. Um, that as you read it, that, you know, there are a lot of things that are perhaps not in breach of the act, but seem bad, wrong, <laughs> bad, whatever, whatever you want to call yeah. them, um, ill-advised, um, which is, and like, there are a lot of takeaways for academics and people studying, you know, democratic institutions and how they're being undermined and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think that any person who reads this and walks away with a black and white perspective is wrong. Yes. Um, that, oh, if only, you know, Shawcross had been interpreted slightly different, the PM would have got off scot-free. Yeah. Well, the and the, I think the binary is yeah, unhelpful here for really describing the extent it's of what worth, went wrong. It's worth thinking about that, right? Because if, if Dion had made the same factual findings and determined through whatever reasoning that yeah, this for was a not slightly to be different yeah. interpretation sure then we sh- we should still be concerned by the findings right and i think that the binary as you say well i would even zoom out from the binary of, of guilty or not guilty it's that putting questions of political ethics in the hands of a commissioner in this way is I, I think there were good reasons for doing this post 2006 well so and i think we we've spoken about this before but there, there's a good rationale to, to sort of take the heat out and say, well, let's let the commissioner look at it and make a ruling. But at the end of the day, like, the act covers so much ground and not more. And questions of political ethics, as, as has been often pointed out, he's the conflict of interest commissioner and ethics. The ethics is really the afterthought. He enforces conflicts of interest. He does not enforce ethics in yeah. the same way. 
I think it is well within the realm of political debate to debate on whether conduct is, you know, unprofessional, whether it's immoral, whether it's unethical, without recourse necessarily to a referee. Uh, this is kind of what democratic contestation is sort of about to some degree, usually on policy. But I think there's room to to have these kinds of conversations outside the ambit of a sort of quasi-judicial role. So the the exception here um, and why the referee, and we, we alluded to it earlier, why, why the referee was useful in this instance, yes. um, was because well parliament and committees have, you know, wide latitude to pursue things not entirely the same way, but in a somewhat similar way uh, to Congress in the United States. Because of the parliamentary system and the whipping and all the rest of it, the parliament doesn't really use its investigative powers very well or very often. No. Um, Whereas the commissioner had much more ability uh, than in any practical sense the House of Commons would undertake. Yeah. Uh, Let's, for a minute, contrast what they tried to do at Justice Committee Mm -hmm. as an investigation into this versus what the commissioner was able to do. Yeah, and I think it's worth saying with the U.S., the U.S. comparison, I think, is apt, and we we definitely underuse Parliament's investigative powers. Uh, But that said, like, if you look at the sort of staffing of the U.S. Congress, every every committee has 60-odd staff, Committee, not not like each. Well, I mean, the members of Congress and senators themselves do have very large staffs, uh, ranging from a couple of dozen to more. <laughs> yes. Uh, but leaving that aside, the committees themselves are exceptionally well staffed. Uh, like, yeah, like really, once again, a couple of dozen at minimum, and then often like lawyers who specialize in investigative like procedure and who can you know do the questioning themselves if they want to. Uh, as we saw last year and, in the Kavanaugh and, hearings. And uh, what, what, do our committees, do. what do our committees Our get? committees have a handful of Library of Parliament analysts who are very skilled and determined people uh, who do a lot of hard work well, but there are like two of them per committee. Um, they have a clerk who once is, does like all the administrative Procedural coordination. Administrative. Uh, and there's one of them. They're booking um, the plane tickets. And then they there. have a handful of support staff, but those are the three people for each committee who are like, the real like legislative support sure. and procedural support it's not big uh and members staffs are also much much smaller um like you're talking three four hill staff in a very crowded hill office yeah most have two, one or two somewhere in the the two to three range i yeah. think is most common um one other point i'd like to flesh out that you alluded to uh, the conflict of interest and ethics, sort of the, the dual title um, in the commissioner's role, is somewhat the case for the conflict of interest uh, act. When people, I think a lot of liberal partisans were very fast to grasp onto this $500 figure. Oh, yeah. That the, oh, this is like a speeding ticket. This is, No, this is not like a speeding ticket. That's a horrible, horrible Point, uh, I did say jaywalking earlier. Jaywalking, <laughs> jaywalking. Different compare, different point of comparison. Jaywalking t- Edmonton yeah. is like a three hundred and eighty dollar ticket. Is it? Um, but a lot of people are downplaying it, saying, "Oh, this is the same as a speeding ticket." This is not the same as a speeding no, ticket. No, the, the, the whole intention of the Conflict of Interest Act was to litigate the results politically. Yes, yes, not the process, but the results. Not only that, but the consequences that are envisioned for breach of the act, the the monetary penalties. Are for administrative errors, yeah, like failing or, uh, to file, non-disclosure. Yeah. Uh, Bill Morneau infamously got a few of these. Yes, um, at a hundred dollars an increment for his failure to disclose the corporation the holding that company the that was owning the villa in France, etc. Yeah. Um, 
So in no world would Trudeau have been fined, and in no world should Trudeau have been fined, because fines are not the appropriate uh, mechanism of recourse yes, I, I, for an ethics it, issue. This would be, what I think, what certain reformers used to call an indulgence. I've taken full responsibility. <laughs> I've paid my $5,000 bill. Yeah. Like, that no, just I mean, do- a, doesn't it, make any sense. It is an indulgence, right? In the, the classic the classic sense. Um, yeah. The, it, not good. The crime is simony, I believe. S- similar to impeachment, yes. we have built our system around expressly political yes. recourse. Although, in the act, and this has been referred to in reporting... Uh, there is sort of a the prime minister should contemplate what punishment or recourse he sees fit, but like that doesn't really work in practice. No, I mean, look, like this is basically the upshot of this is that it's something voters now have, and they, they can make the assessment. And Which, I think this actually this leads so we we were discussing as we always do, and always beat ourselves to the punch on conversations that we should just do while we're recording. <laughs> um, but what I was saying earlier is that like the upshot of this in public conversation has been. Almost nothing in the sense, not in the sense that it's unimportant, which it's not. I think it is important. I think the findings are, are disturbing in a lot of dimensions, as I discussed. But no one has publicly changed their minds on this at the sort of media pundit, political actor level. Like I can't think of anyone who was saying in February or March or April, "Oh, you know, I don't think this is anything. I, you know, this isn't a big deal. You guys should just lay off." And is now saying, "Wow, with the commissioner's determination, I'm really disturbed by these findings of fact and by like the way that he's laid out his analysis. Yeah. And I think that this is bad, and that you know Trudeau should should think really hard about this." No one has, to my knowledge, said that. Uh, I've seen a lot of kind of uh, analyses saying the commissioner's analysis is bad from. Uh, people broadly it's, 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 associated well, it's, with the Liberal Party online. It, it is the, the quite literal grasping at straws. Yeah, and then people responding to those with, no, actually, it's good, and here's why threads, and certainly we've done, like, two or three of these ourselves, so we're not, you know, like, giving ourselves a pass on this. But I think it's just, it is intriguing that, like, I can think of literally no one, like, not a newspaper columnist, not a editorial board, not, you know, a single pundit who's coming out and saying... Yeah, you know, this is really serious. But it, it's just classic partisanship. Or the though, other way around. Because... I don't know how that would work, but... It, it's just classic partisanship, though, right? Yes. Like, the seek to, you know, confirmation bias where it's useful yeah. and uh, dismissing things where, where they're not Yeah, but, like, the Toronto Star editorial boards, like, error-filled, like, editorial the day after the report drops was, like, that was really bad. That the largest circulation newspaper in the country puts out an unsigned editorial containing major, major factual errors uh, that are at the center of the conclusions they draw was genuinely like, look, like we say this all the time. We don't really have high expectations for media in this country. It largely sucks. But like, yikes, you know, like that's, you hate to see it. Like when this is a sitting prime minister we're talking about, like you kind of need to get the basic facts right. Yeah, I, yeah I mean, it's bad. No, no defense for me. Um, big, big Toronto Star apologist, Tim <laughs> <yeah>. Rayville. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean it was, it was awful. It was honestly awful. bad. And le- I mean, like you said, you you turn to the columnist pages, and it's Andrew Coyne saying I was right all along. It's Paul Wallace saying I was right all along, and like that's they were right. But, like fair enough. To take it one step further, what's what's sort of interesting to see some of the the liberal pundit Twitter personalities then going to the attack the media stage. Yes, the I mean. Do they have reasons to attack most 
post media, perhaps, perhaps not. Yeah, and and we like I would actually recommend the Canon piece that was published recently about post media's turn to to kind of more explicit right wing politics. Like I have no love for the the series of outlets; they have good reporters, but like um, editorially, it is what it is. But in terms of the liberal centrist position of the we have to defend the media, we have to defend our democratic institutions. Oh yeah, we we are the nonpartisans. Um, everyone else, oh, is yeah, no, par- I, everyone else is partisan. We're not. Yes. How how quickly it turns to. Oh, every everyone we dislike <laughs> yeah. is rebel. Um, the only good outlet in Canada is the Toronto Star. Yeah, well, and like people being like, oh, the the conservative appointed ethics commissioner, which is just like once again, just like basic no. factual lapses and this kind of thing. I, I, everyone should break the conflict of interest act. It's yeah, like, no. Every everyone's big brained uh, meme guy until uh, until it's their their person. There was just. A num- so many like and you you turn on the TV and you see the liberal pundits who are put up defending this, and you, you, you <laughs> what a terrible job you you, you feel for them because it, it's an incredibly would you hard say, would you say that you hate to see it? <laughs> <laughs> it's an incredibly hard position to be in. Yes, um, well, and, I don't feel that bad for them. But to to have to go and to an extent they don't have to they, they could do something else they, with their time they look they ridiculous to. yes they do um, their choice and it's it's not entirely dissimilar to the position of Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Being put up to defend Donald Trump's, you know, buying of Greenland. Yes. Um, and the Repu- the GOP spokesman who was saying like, it actually shows thinking big. That this is this, this is, is the big thinking. There's resources yeah. in Greenland. Yeah, you know, it's th- good. this is this is the kind of leadership we need in our country, which was basically what a lot of yeah the the punditocracy or punditry um, amounted to. Oh yeah, week. no, I mean it's this exact same thing people have been saying since February. It was like. The jobs, though. Actually, one really, really, really funny uh, piece in the report is when um, it's recounting a conversation oh. Jody Wilson-Raybould and Bill Morneau were having uh, outside of the House of Commons. Uh, honestly, one of the funniest little bits in here when basically... Jody Wilson-Raybould tells Bill Morneau to back off, like, on, you know, having his staff berate her staff. And he says, you know, there's so many jobs at risk. And she says, okay, well, do you have any analysis? And he's like, no, but I used to be a CEO, so I know business. Which is, like, this is the thing about the defending jobs claim is that there doesn't seem to have actually been a hard analysis of what this would look like conducted. Well, the the number jumped around so much. Yes. Um, initially. It was, and SNC and, and then even came were... out at one point, and people forget this, when it was like, well, I don't know where this 9,000 thing is coming from. <laughs> like, yeah, so months like, ago. The number was 6,000, 7,000, 8,000, 9,000. It, it changed absurd. by the day. Yeah. And no one actually had any, like, they were going to move their headquarters, and then people were like, yeah, but all the projects that they do all across Canada will perhaps continue yeah. to an extent those jobs will bridge to other companies like yeah. one, uh... one interesting thing is that the case of depot seems to have gotten itself which is the quebec government uh well the sort of quebec pension plan seems to have gotten itself really ripped off because they they gave snc lavalin a loan uh several years ago and one of the conditions of the loan was that snc's headquarters stay in quebec and the decision making yes, stays yes, in yes. quebec and essentially what the federal government seems to have worked out is that snc would basically like create a new entity that would sort of satisfy all the technical requirements of that while moving itself to London. Uh, which is like, yeah, I don't know who's doing the drafting at the case to depot for these things, but maybe uh, <laughs> maybe look into some of the loopholes there because that seemed... And frankly, that probably would have been litigated, right? Like there, Oh, undoubtedly. All, almost certainly would have been litigated. So it's just there are so many question marks around this. And I, I mean, know. they wanted to go to London. Yes. That, not, not Ontario. 
No. Yeah. Okay. Bre- Brexit London. Yeah, exactly. Oh, which, I'm, uh, I'm not, I'm not yeah. sure that uh, speaks of good political decision-making. Yeah, but, that, but that's the stable of, of great companies yes. Boris Johnson can show off to show that post-Brexit Britain is doing super good. Um, one other thing, too, that, that kind of jumps out uh, about this discussion is the sort of procedure with the DPP. And I think an under-discussed point that I think we have made in the past when this was kind of very fresh but was about the requirements that you need to meet to in, in order to be um, Con- considered for so the national economic interest thing was the really big public discussion. Like, yes. Does the, is this an explicit consideration of national economic interest? Dion weighs into that. I don't actually think that's the particularly interesting discussion. Uh, as we discussed, improper pressure is improper pressure, no matter what reasons you're doing it for. Uh, what is interesting is that one of the conditions is that you, the company has to admit guilt snc lavalin i do not believe is ready to admit guilt like i think they indicated to the director of public prosecutions that they were ready to basically fight this thing to the hilt in court i think the idea is that it, this is in a dog fight this is the, the little dog has to roll on its belly before it gets any kind of mercy right like you have to say mea culpa mea culpa mea culpa and then the dpp can go okay so what are we talking about here now you cannot say we are going to sit here until we all starve, uh, <laughs> and we will never admit an inch. And give us the DPP please, or DPA, please. Like, not how the process is supposed to work. And I'm surprised that that has not really been covered more as a sort of like really a priori like I'm really on a Latin kick here, uh, like disqu- uh, disqualifying factor in this whole thing. I mean, well, on yeah. SNC's end. Well, yeah, we. I don't think we know. The contents of the Section 13 memo, do we? We do not. So no. It's not been made so public. Per, perhaps yeah. that was part of the DPP. Yeah, we, we cannot in, know in unless case, they, they choose to make it public somehow. I don't know if they even have the authority to do that. The, the one other thing I would raise is uh, just on the on the history of the uh, deferred prosecution agreements. Um, one one thing that was particularly interesting the the timeline first of all is incredibly meticulous in there yes. and it's very interesting to see just how quickly it moves through the system mm-hmm. um, once the liberals uh, get into government and the uh, SNC starts to go to work to get them on board and they, you know they do the quick public consultation they get it in the uh, budget implementation act um, but one of the interesting details that I I don't believe was uh, reported before and was frankly the source of much speculation was whether or not JWR had brought the DPA uh, document to cabinet mm-hmm. had brought in the MC to cabinet as it would have had uh, or as it had a criminal code element to it mm-hmm. uh, so in that case you'd expect sort of a joint MC between the Minister of Finance who is uh, spearheading the Budget Implementation Act and the uh, JWR on the DPA components of it and justice would have had a role, would have taken the cabinet, would have had to defend it um, uh, in front of her cabinet colleagues, justify it, etc. Yep. And nope. <laughs> she did not do that. Yeah. And then she didn't appear at committee later to defend it and instead they sent uh, a pu- public servant. No, it was uh, PWGSC. Public uh, so, um, procurement. Yeah, uh, no, PSPC now. PSPC, yeah. Yes, but can, I'm trying to remember. Was it Judy Foote at the time? I don't remember if it was Judy Foote or... Carla uh, Qualtro now. Qualtro, yeah. Um, so it just, like, the reluctance was baked in from day one yes. around this huge change in policy yes. that the minister was resisting. So th- this was the, one would say, the obvious foreshadowing at the beginning of the uh, yeah. grade nine English lit novel that perhaps... <laughs> 
dark clouds were gathering on the horizon. Indeed. Yeah, no, it's, um... It, yes, the, the internal dynamics there certainly uh, are interesting, but I think not the most interesting part of the whole thing. Um, I, I think in terms of new information, the stuff about SNC's kind of close contact with the yes. AML really is the, the, like, the really interesting stuff, and I hope that gets more scrutiny. For instance, uh, the meeting that Scott Bryson and uh, Bill Morneau had with Neil Bruce in Davos... Or sorry, it was uh, Bill Morneau, Bill Morneau in Davos, and yeah. I think it was Bryson in China. Yeah, and like, were those reported lobbying contacts? I imagine. I they don't would. know. I imagine they would be. Yeah, like, well, I have, um, I'm curious about that, and we'll look it up and update on Twitter accordingly later. But um, um, yeah, like, there are a lot of interesting questions here, and I think the interesting question about the lobbyist's obligation not to place people in conflicts of interest is like, now that there has been a documented conflict of interest, like. What happens to SNC now on their end, if anything? Yeah, the, the Globe and Mail had sort of a spin-off story about Bryson and BMO. Oh, yeah. Um, but that yeah. didn't seem that well-founded. Um, like, I mean, if so, the person... So, so, at, so yeah, long, there, there's a lot of moving things so that have to be with, true. With, with some conditions, yeah. but the initial denials take them for uh, what what they're worth. Oh, okay. So you're foreseizing it. what well okay let let me just further flesh this out for those who haven't read the golden mail story about bmo um was that uh scott bryson uh you know retiring from politics the the prompt for the the initial cabinet shuffle that triggered effectively all of this um all scott bryson has gone to work for bmo yes and many of the people on essence or several of the people on the snc board um who were in contact with bryson have dual or many roles, uh, another of which being on the board, I think it's the board position yeah, at uh, BMO. Yeah. Um, and then Bryson went to work at BMO, so there was, I think, initial questions. Was, was this a violation of the Con- yeah. Conflict of Interest Act? Is sort of where it goes. Yeah, though... But it doesn't seem to be the case. Bryson would have had to had his employment at BMO looked at by the commissioner to begin with. Likely. Yeah, um, definitely. Like, if something... Like, if you're the, sec- the president of the Treasury Board and you're going to a bank, yeah. The commissioner is going to look at likely. It. Yeah, I think it's very fair to say. Um, so yeah, it's uh, at any rate, we will see what comes of this. I think the the consequences, as as we said, are going to be political. Will people care? I think people like this really hurt Trudeau where it hurts, which is to say, right in the brand. Uh, the sort of sunny ways stuff is, I think, done. Like that's that's done now. Now it's like, well, we got to keep the the climate denying ogrish uh ford like andrew Shear conservatives out of office and if you don't then you know you love them which is what they're saying to the ndp of course and you know like how dare you to yeah so it's basically like the other guys are worse is now like and the fallback position that every government eventually falls back on people have long said that arrogance is uh well not people i, I this well some some version of this that ar- arrogance is liberal kryptonite um yep. and i think you know there was Many points during this entire saga, from from day one all along, where that arrogance was on full display. Um, Trudeau's initial um, non-apology, well, not his yeah, apology, his his initial yes. straight denials that are being replayed now. Yes, and then the non-apology um, apology before he jetted off to Nunavut. Well, yeah, that that <laughs> one in particular was supposed to be sort of this watershed moment where he was going to turn the page. Yeah, they were hyping it up big, and it seems like he wanted no part of it. And they could just never get to the apology. No. And it's, I think we should say because we haven't actually said what like what the prime minister's response to this. Though I think the liberal response speaks kind of for itself is that they, they really were just like you know mistakes were made 
lessons were learned, and now we're, we're turning the page and moving on. Well, uh, so it's worth briefly mentioning the McClellan, McClellan report, report yeah. which, which we've alluded to. So it was, it was a report that was uh, prepared, basically, to be sort of lessons learned from this by Anne McClellan, former, former liberal yeah. cabinet minister, justice minister, etc. So eminently qualified um, writer of the Cannabis Report as well. Yes, though it should be um, said that I think a lot of people were very leery about her involvement in this. I think it didn't redound to I'm, her credit. I, yeah, I mean, yes. for sure, for sure. Because, I mean, hiring a liberal partisan to write a report to get you out of trouble strikes everyone as questionable. Not, yeah, questionable. it was silly to take it. Um, anyway, so she wrote the report, long report, comes up with a number of recommendations, whether or not the recommendations essentially are in regards to the structural changes to the role of the Minister of Justice and Attorney General. Um, she basically says that, you know, overarching structural changes are not required, uh, that Canada should not pursue a UK model, um, that there should be some sort of tweaks, like some sort of shock cross process should be set up yeah. with written paper and formal consultations, et cetera, et cetera. Changing the name of the department. Uh, yeah. The <laughs> DOJ should now become the Department of Justice and Officer of the Attorney General. Don't joke! As like a nudge style prod yes. to keep partisans in ethical lines, which is... You know, perhaps not the direction I would have taken to, out of my nine recommendations. Perhaps not. Um, but it was a 75-page report. I think it got undercovered, um, especially because everyone was busy reading the other report. I'll confess um, that I didn't read it. But it was it was weaponized uh, in a very interesting way. They refused to release it until the uh, off uh, until the. Uh, Ethics Commissioner released his report, and then they released it several hours later. <laughs> Which, I don't know what that was. Uh, that was very th interesting. That was not a coincidence. That was an express strategy to yes. try and take the steam out of the Commissioner's report. Yes. I don't um, think it worked. And it was... That detail was pre-leaked sort of the day before, I guess. Yeah. They must have known the report was coming out the next day. Yeah. Uh, so... Well, yeah. Well, I think what I said at the time was, oh, the report must be bad then. Yeah. Because... <laughs> If they're already trying to, to crowd it out. They're, they're sitting on that report for months waiting yeah. to, yeah. Yeah, so I think in terms of unanswered questions and next steps, as I said, I think largely it is political now. It's just like we have an election in now a month and a half and people are going to figure it out. There is also a the ethics committee of, of the House of Commons is meeting on Wednesday to discuss an invitation to um, the ethics commissioner. Um, so to talk about Correct. his report. So we will see what happens with that. Uh, I'm sure it'll be fun to watch. Of course, if the, anyone remembers the last round of times that committees have met to try and discuss this, they haven't really gone anywhere. So two, uh, a few points on that. One, the ethics, uh, ethics committee is notably one of the opposition chaired committees. Yes. So the liberals still have majority, but yes. the, the chair is a conservative. But previously it was taken to the justice committee. Yeah. Ethics tried twice. Where the chair turned to yes, the liberals immediately, immediately yes. to put a competing motion. Yes. Which should have been point of order right away, but yeah, to, things happen. To basically kill it. So now less of those shenanigans are possible yes. as it's with the ethics committee. Yeah. Um, committees often discuss, uh, actually pretty regularly discuss reports like this from commissioners. Yeah. Um, so this is not entirely I mean, it's really the blue. point it's, of it's officers not, of parliament is to report to parliament. Um, <laughs> it's not out of order. No. Um, and that's one thread that's loose. The other thread that's still being unraveled a little bit, although I don't expect it'll be very unraveled. Um, is J JWR had uh, has now stated publicly that the RCMP have approached her yeah. and had some sort of discussion with her. Is there an investigation, et cetera, et cetera? All those questions well, will basically. I will. I will say for the, like, if you look at the Conflict of Interest Act, if criminal charges, yes, yes the Are... commissioner stops 
Yeah, if, if, if the commissioner finds out that yeah. there is a formal investigation, yes. criminal charges are pressed or being pursued yes. and or I, whatever I will it is. just say this, apropos of nothing, that we are still waiting on the Greywall report filed last, mm. the, the complaint filed last March. So make of that what you will in terms of the delay, but it is certainly interesting in terms of uh, looking at that provision of his investigative powers. Fair. Yes, I, I'm not implying anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. I think that will probably do it for us. Uh, I guess tune in to the Ethics Committee on Wednesday at, I believe, 1 p.m. for a uh, what is promises to be a scintillating uh, display of parliamentary excellence, unless the liberals shut it down after 20 minutes like they did the Justice Committee that one time. It's certainly bad timing. Um, otherwise, let's just, I mean, we're a few weeks out now from the writ period. Uh, I think broadly the expectation is a later writ rather than an earlier writ. Mm-hmm. Um, so mid September, yep. a, a lot of staffers are departing Ottawa. Yep. Um, to go to, be that to time. their riding, go find whatever house volunteer that they're going to be yeah. staying at. So expect to see uh, a whole bunch of Ottawa types basically plugging into local campaigns. Uh, minister's office go down to ghost staff, uh, two, three people. Um, one, com, <laughs> one comms guy, one policy guy who are the lucky people who get to keep drawing a paycheck during the writ. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone else is running on fumes. So. Tough, yeah. tough luck. Let's skeleton see. crew. I actually only saw skeleton crews recently is that it's not referring to crews made up of skeletons, but actually just a very small crew. Yes. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. It's okay. a joke. <laughs> 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 so, no, I thought it was referring to the literal undead. The, the myth of Davy Jones. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's that's it. That's all. We'll, we'll see if we do another episode in the next little while. Kind of uh, doubt it. Unlikely. Kind of doubt it. I think this one was, uh, this was an extra special yeah, treat. You for never all, know. We'll, we'll see what all happens. Our friends. Good, good luck to everyone out there who's campaigning uh, this fall. Uh, be, be nice. This, to... this does not apply if you're working for the Liberal Party, Conservatives, or Greens. Uh, but, yes, good luck to everyone. Be, be nice. Asterisk. Be nice to your local door knocker. Please they... do. God. It's, it's you know what? You, people get out there. They knock on doors. <clears> it's not... Don't be a dick. Like, if you disagree with the party, just say, you yeah. know, no thanks. I'm not interested. Sorry. The, these are like the, the foot soldiers of the democratic process in Canada. Yeah, just, don't just be, be kind a dick. to them. Yeah, same with callers. Like, it's not no, fun to call, like, people. Know that they're collecting uh, your personal data and that's all going to go into a database <laughs> somewhere. Yeah, I mean, so honestly. Keep that in mind as well. Honestly, I would say, quite frankly, if you are someone whose door is knocked upon by a party you are not planning on supporting, the best thing you can do is not tell them anything. Yeah, and I, I mean that quite sincerely. Well, you know, you don't want to get added to the likely supporter, and then you're going to get calls. Yeah, you you want to give them like a light negative. Yeah, a or just say sorry. Feeling. I don't tell people how I'm planning on voting. Yeah, just say that. That's that's our door yeah. knocking advice. If you really you. feel very strongly that like you you know you want to absolutely do the worst thing you can to the person knocking on your door, that is really it. Please do not scream at them. That it's really not good. Don't Just do that. Politely, politely take the paper and wish wish them a good day. Yes. Maybe, maybe give them a popsicle. Yes, if you want to waste their time. No, no that's just, classic they right. can take the popsicle on the road. <laughs> uh, They're we, portable. We we did not drink a beer this time. Etienne had a, a nice little peach pop. Uh, it's a very but, very good peach pop prepared by Laurent's partner. Yes. Uh, so. Nine out of ten would peach pop again. Right, well, we have more, so that's good. Um, yeah, otherwise, uh, yeah, have a good fall, everyone. We'll see you, see you on the other side of this, this horrific, horrific lamentation. <laughs> uh, and it'll be great. Love the democratic process, and we love to see it. Democracy is messy. Bye, everyone. 
Oh yeah, uh, follow us on Twitter at TourPrancePod, uh, rate and review us on iTunes, etc. Yes, I'm gonna do a regional call out. If you're in BC, review us. We're, we're coming. We're coming yeah, for BC. you next, Manitoba. Yeah, be on alert, Saskatchewan. I don't know. Are we? So we're doing. We're, we're doing that now. Okay. Bye, everyone. Makes it more personal.